no, don't put it. It doesn't look good. It looks terrible up there. Why? Well, because of the two wooden ornaments. You gotta have something shiny in between. Who gives a flying squirrel about the ornaments? The lights are all wrong. Forget the lights. Oh, look at these garlands. You can't just throw them on there. You've got to drape them. I paid fifteen dollars for this ornament. They told me how much they loved it. You look at it. Okay, over here. I'm putting canine cream on right here. No, 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 didn't that fire teach you a lesson, you maniac? Favor. Do me a favor. Stick your toe in the water and twist this bulb right here. It'd be worth it to get away from you. Will you stop your killing Christmas? Oh, my God. What did you do? Nothing. Hi, Grandma and Grandpa. Merry Christmas, kids. <laughs> I just hate anything bigger than you, don't you? How many of you can relate to that family right there? That's what it looks like when you have your family Christmas. I know I can. Let's be honest. Come on. How many of you have weird families? Come on. Everybody ought to raise their hand. But what you need to know is that they're saying the same thing about you right now. Uh, so we've been going through this series as we prepare for Christmas and we prepare to spend time with all of our weird families and all the, the dysfunctional. Uh, maybe your family puts the fun in dysfunctional and we're preparing for that, but we want you to be encouraged because there is hope for your family. There is hope for uh, your life if you're maybe the dysfunctional one. And we're going to see what we've been doing is we've been going through the, the story of uh, Jesus genealogy. And as you look at Jesus' genealogy, what you see is that even the Lamb of God had some black sheep in his family tree. You see that there are messy people that fill Jesus' family tree. We started off by looking at Judah and Tamar and the whole mess that that was. And we saw that there was the hope of divine providence through that. And then we looked last week at Rahab and her whole life and how things turned around because someone gave her a second chance. And God gave her a second chance. This morning we come to perhaps, uh, I would argue, the most famous person in David's family tree, uh, excuse me, Jesus' family tree, and that's King David. King David. And most of us, when we hear the word uh, name David, we think David and who? David and Goliath. Usually in a group like this, the men say Goliath, and the women say David and Bathsheba. Yeah, so this morning we're going to look at David and Bathsheba, and what you have in David and Goliath is you have two uh, major challenges in David's life, but they couldn't be any more different. And his response to these two challenges, David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba, could not have been any more different. Goliath was an ugly, in-your-face challenge that he had. Bathsheba was beautiful and in his imagination. Goliath, he met out on the the harshness of the battlefield, and he met Bathsheba in the Cush bedroom. With Goliath, David was courageous, he was fearless, he was a man of God, he stood up for what he knew was right, and he saved many lives that day. With Bathsheba, what we see is that David was foolish, and he cost many people their lives. This morning, we're going to be looking at... uh, at the joy of grace. There's some difficult things in this story between David and Bathsheba that we're going to look at this morning. But what we're going to see in the end is that through Jesus Christ there is grace. 
and there is joy that comes with that grace. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and uh, we're going to start here at the beginning, and what we see is, uh, immediately we see that there's, there's a problem. Let's look at verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab and his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rahab, but David remained in Jerusalem. So this is where we start to see the beginning of the problem, is that if you notice, it says, when kings go off to war, David is king. And right now, he is not performing his duty as king in leading his men. And this is the sin. The sin comes when we when we fail to recognize and accept our responsibility, when we choose to ignore our responsibility over self-indulgence. When we choose self-indulgence over our responsibility, that's where the sin comes in. That's where we sin. David's sin is that he chose to ignore his responsibility so that he could indulge himself. And here's what happens. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof. Of the palace, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. All right, so David is up. He's late. He's in his palace. He's probably bored of playing video games, and um, he's run out of stuff to do. So he gets up, and he takes a walk. And David goes out, and this is where the trouble begins. He sees this beautiful woman bathing. Now, uh, in these days, a lot of things took place on the roof. The roof was kind of a place where the most air was circulating in the house. They didn't have um, central heating and air. They didn't have ceiling fans. So if you wanted a nice cool breeze, you went up to the roof. And this also happened to be where people bathed. But when you're the king, uh, your house is a little bit higher than everybody else's. So you get to look down on everybody else. And so David is out for a walk, and he looks down, and he sees this woman. And it says that she was very beautiful. She was very beautiful. Now, this word for beautiful that's used here in the Hebrew, it's only used a couple times in the Old Testament. So what you have is you have Bathsheba, who is now uh, identified as beautiful. She is one of the most beautiful women in all of the Old Testament, like top three. Um, She is drop-dead gorgeous. She's a knockout. She's amazing. Beautiful. But the same word for beautiful is used to describe David. You have David who is like the Brad Pitt of the Old Testament, standing up there and he's thinking to himself, you know what, beautiful people ought to be together. Like that's what's going through his mind. Now, I don't know uh, the psychology of beautiful people because I've never been beautiful myself, uh, but some of you are there. You understand how that, that thinking works. Nobody says amen to that, huh? All right. Let's go on. So David sees this woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. Now, get this. He's brazen enough to say, not only am I going to look on that woman, I want someone, hey, come over here. You see that woman down there? The one that we're peeping tomming on? Who is that? A little bit of a creeper there, if you ask me. So he sends someone to inquire about the woman, and he reported, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliim the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, if you're ever looking for a 1 Corinthians 10, 13 way out of your sin, this is it. This is it. This man who comes and reports to David, he says, David, this is somebody's daughter. You have daughters, don't you, David? David, this is somebody's wife. You have wives, don't you, David? But David chooses self-indulgence. David chooses the wrong course of action. 
He chooses to discard his responsibility and indulge himself. Now, he's going there, and let's continue on. He goes and he inquires about this woman. He finds out who she is. He, he knows where she lives. And it says, so uh, David sent a messenger to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. So there's a lot going on here that uh, a lot of times we read into the text. Now, what I want to make very clear here is that Bathsheba and David, this is the first time they've met. They didn't have, regardless of what the Christian romance novels that you read, the Karen Kingsbury or Francine Rivers, doesn't matter what they say, uh, this is the first time they met. They didn't have some budding romance taking place, right? This is the first time they've met. And it seems that David is intent on having a one-night stand with Bathsheba and sending her away, and Bathsheba's more than willing to go along with it. Like, she wasn't coerced. There wasn't anything there. Now, some of you are thinking, well, like, how do you say no to the king, especially when he looks like Brad Pitt, right? But there's, not, there's nothing there. She's not coerced. She's a willing party to this. But what we find is that David is still the one held responsible. David is the one who's held responsible. It says she, she had been cleansing herself from her, her uncleanliness. So what happens is she's had her cycle. She's going through the ritual cleansing, and then David sleeps with her, which means that there's only one person whose baby this could be. It's got to be David's baby because Uriah's off fighting in the war. Her husband's out where David's men, where David should be. So there's no other option. This has got to be David's baby. Now David has a problem. He's got a big problem, and this is where we start to see the cover-up take place. David's got a problem, and he's going to try to cover it up. Let's see what he does here. David sent orders to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then Uriah, uh, he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. All right, so... David's thinking, all right, if I get Uriah home quickly enough and I send him home and he spends the night with Bathsheba, he's been off for a couple weeks, maybe months fighting war, he's probably could use some alone time with his wife. And if I send him home and he spends the night with his wife, then it's Uriah's baby. I'm in the clear. But Uriah doesn't go home. He doesn't go home. It says, but Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants And he didn't go down to his house. Now David's got a problem. He's got a problem. Uriah was supposed to go home, but he didn't. Listen to what he says here. It says, uh, when it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? David, uh, Uriah, you have a wife? Like, you've you've got to be feeling the need here for a little bit. Why don't you go home and spend time with your wife? But Uriah says, look, David, uh, I'm with the king's men. I'm with your men out on the battlefield. Your men are out there. I'm not about to go home and enjoy the comfort of my wife while the rest of the men are out there sleeping on the hard ground fighting your war. Uriah is a man of character. I mean, what's what's Uriah supposed to do? Is he supposed to go back to the front line and say, Hey, uh, uh, Uriah, how was your, your time at home? Oh, it was great, man. I got a mani-pedi. I spent some time with my wife. Uh, and now I'm back. No, Uriah says, you know what? 
all the troops are sleeping out in the field, I'm going to sleep out in the field. And so he doesn't go home. David is faced with a big problem here. It says, Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are all dwelling in tents, and my master's, master Joab and his soldiers are ca- camping in the open field. How can I enter my house and eat, drink, and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live by your life, I will not do this. And so David devises a new plan. Verse 12, stay here. David said to Uriah, And tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David, Uriah, David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. All right, so David's devised a new plan. His plan is that if Uriah's not going to go home on his own free will, maybe if I get him drunk enough, he won't understand what he's doing. He won't know what he's doing. Maybe someone will be his designated driver and drop him off at the house. But it doesn't happen. Uriah, even in the state that he's in, has enough character that he again sleeps at the gate. And he doesn't go home. And so David has devised this new plan. And his new plan is that he's going to send a letter back. He's got to do something. He's got to get rid of Uriah. Uriah cannot be in the picture anymore or else David's in big trouble. And what we see here is that this cover-up is going to lead to innocent people killed. Innocent people killed to cover his sin. So David writes this order to Joab and he says, Look, put Uriah at the front line. And put him where the fighting is the worst. And then draw the troops back. Leaving Uriah to be killed. And he seals this letter and he sends it. And guess who he sends the letter with? Uriah. Uriah arrives back at the battlefield and he's carrying his own death sentence. And I'm sure Joab is reading this, and Joab knows that it's not as simple as putting one man out there, because his men are like the U.S. Navy SEALs, United States Marine Corps. They leave no one behind. They're not just going to pull back and leave Uriah there to die by himself. So, so Joab knows that he's going to have to sacrifice a number of men. David's sin is leading to the death of many people. David's sin is going to lead to the death of many people. People are killed to cover up David's sin. Now, something that we have to realize is that in all of our lives, in all of our lives, whenever we sin, something dies. Whenever we sin, something dies. It's just reality. Let's keep going and look at verse 27 and see what happens here. So David has, has sent Uriah. Uriah's out, and he, he's killed. Um, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So Uriah is dead, but back in the palace, everything's okay. Because David is in the clear. He's gotten rid of Uriah, and he's been able to take Bathsheba as his wife. And now that she's his wife, everyone thinks they conceive immediately, oh, this David is such a good man. He takes in this grieving widow whose husband is a war hero. He gets a full military funeral with a, a flag-draped coffin. She's the grieving widow, and David takes her in. And, oh, aren't they blessed that they immediately conceive a child? So everybody thinks. But we read that what David did displeased the Lord. Now, if you're anything like me, um, 
you read this story and you're pretty displeased with what David's doing right now. You're pretty displeased with everything that's going on here. And it's, it's really hard. Uh, part of me wants to say, you know what, God, I wish you would just strike him down. When we see other people caught in sin, it's real easy for us to say, God, would you just strike him down? But when it's our own sin, we're blind to it. We can't see it. In fact, there's, uh, there's a, a phenomenon that's been noted called the bystander effect. And uh, psychologists have written a lot about the bystander effect, which basically says that uh, in times when, when evil things are taking place, most people stand by and let it happen. I mean, think about the Holocaust. Think about how many times have you seen someone beaten on YouTube, and the only thing people around them are doing is pull out their phone and watch these people get beat. Think about Penn State. The, the awful situation that happened with the football team there. Uh, a man named David Brooks, writing for the New York Times, was actually writing an article about this Penn State thing, and he said, what ordinary people don't get involved in tra- tra- tragic situations or unjust situations. In centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. Like, it acknowledged this weakness that people aren't typically going to get involved, and it says, these systems emphasized our sinfulness, and reminded people of their own inner evil. Like, we all know that, right? We're on the inside that we've got a sinfulness. It says, unfortunately, modern society has built a moral system around our inner wonderfulness. I would never let someone get away with that. I would never do that. We, we only see our inner wonderfulness. We want to assume the best of people, but what we fail to understand is that even our own hearts are deceived. We deceive ourselves. And so we stand by and we let these things happen. And he says that the question is not, how did they let this happen? When we see these horrible tragedies, it's not, we don't have to ask ourselves, how could people stand by and let this happen? He says the better question is, how do we overcome this? How do we overcome this inner wonderfulness? He says, we, we overcome this tendency to evade and self-deceive. Uh, that is the main thing that we have to do. He says, sadly, it's a situation our society has a hard time asking this question because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to ignore the underside of our nature. The underside of our nature pulls us towards selfishness. It pulls us towards self-indulgence. And that's what's happened to David here. He's got this underside of his sinful nature, and it's pulled him into sin. And that sin needed to be covered up because David didn't want to be found out. And so it leads to the death of many innocent people to cover for his sin. I said earlier that anytime we sin, something dies. And that is very true. Something dies anytime we sin. Sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes, in David's case, it's another person. Sometimes it's our future that dies. God has plans for us, but because of our sin, that plan changes. And our future plans die. Sometimes it's just a part of our character that dies when we sin. But when we sin, something dies. Now, David is feeling like he's gotten away with this. Uh, He is uh, feeling pretty good about himself at this point. And he's got no clue that anyone even knows what's going on. And so in verse 12, what we find is that a year has passed. 
It's been about a year. So David's son has been born, and David is feeling like he got off scot-free. But then, because the thing that David did displeased the Lord, he sends Nathan the prophet to talk with David. And this is what it said. Chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he arrived, he said to him, all right? So Nathan is about to tell David a story. And as we read this story, I want you to think about David and Bathsheba and Uriah and see if there's any parallels here. See if you can pick up on it. Nathan says, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up living with him and his children. It shared meager, his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, the Hebrew word for daughter is bat, as in bat Sheba. Nathan's telling the story saying, David bought his daughter. Hint, hint. Are you catching my drift? He says, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. So this rich man takes the poor man's little lamb, the one thing that he has, and he destroys it. He destroys it. It can't be given back. David is furious. David is furious. He says, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that one. David has done this thing and he still doesn't get it. He's still ignorant of this fact that it's his sin, right? Nathan is telling this story to David, hoping that David will see his own sin. But what we're going to see is that God is telling this, Dave, this story to David for a purpose. When it says that he had no pity, it says David, David replies, look, this man is going to pay with his life because he had no pity. That word is compassion. It means he had no concern for other people and their well-being. And David still can't see what's going on here until we get to the next verse. It says, Nathan replied, David... You are the man. This is not a good, hey, you the man. That's not what's going on here. He says, David, you are that man. You are that man. You are the rich man who killed the poor man's sheep. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were not enough, I would have given you more. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what, is, what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took Uriah's wife to be yours. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you and your family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. You have acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. David responded, I have sinned against the Lord. God is allowing David to see his own sin. He's allowing David to hear this story, this fictitious story that Nathan has brought to him, and pronounce judgment on himself. 
so that God can reveal David's own sinfulness to himself. Prior to this, David's thinking that he's gotten away with it, that there's nothing wrong with what he did. And now he's confronted with his own sin. We have the confrontation where God exposes his heart and his actions. God exposes his heart and his actions. Now, uh, we, we, as I said, we're going to see um, anytime we sin, something dies. And even though Uriah and some of David's innocent men who were out in the field fighting have died, it gets even worse. It gets even worse. Nathan replied to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. Here we have another example of an innocent one paying for the guilty. David's child had done nothing wrong. Yet it cost him his life. We see again that anytime we sin, something dies. We see this clearly in Romans 6.23, which says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we'll get to that second part in a minute. But the wages of sin is death. Because of my sin, something has to die. Because of your sin, something has to die. It may be a relationship. It may be a part of your character. It may be your future. But something dies whenever we sin. It says, this verse, Romans 6.23, says that because of our sin, what we have earned is death. Yet there is no way humanly possible that we can make up for that. Something had to be done. Something had to be done about David's sin against Uriah. Something had to be done. Someone had to step in. Now, it's hard for us to reconcile. I mean, some of us are here this morning, and we're looking around, and we're thinking, how can God let David get away with this? Shouldn't David be the one who dies? Why is this innocent child dying? And we want to pronounce judgment on David. Others here this morning, maybe you understand what David's going through. Maybe you've been there. You've been caught in your own sin. Maybe you understand what it is to need his grace. To need God's grace. Now, I don't understand how this happens. uh, But what we're going to see is that God completely changes this situation. And if you'll go with me to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to see that, that God redeems this situation with David and Uriah and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Matthew chapter 1 says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus. And they're recounting, as Jesus is entering the world, they want to recount all of Jesus' lineage. And it says, the historical record of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nishan, Nishan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. We read about her last week. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered King David. Next verse. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. David is listed in the line of Jesus, but Uriah is not forgotten. God did not forget Uriah. 
Some of you are here this morning and you've got such sin and pain that has been committed against you in your past life and you're wondering, God, have you forgotten me? God, have you forgotten about what my family did to me? God, have you forgotten about what that person at work did to me? And I'm here to tell you that God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten. Uriah lives on. Uriah's name is remembered. Now, I don't know how this is going to work, but I do know this, that someday when we get to heaven, at the marriage feast of the Lamb, when we sit down at that banquet table, I imagine that David is going to be sitting across the table from Uriah. Now, some of us struggle with that. How can that be that David gets to be there and he gets to look across the table at Uriah and Uriah gets to look across the table at David? He shouldn't have to go through that. But it's because of the grace of God, because of Jesus, that it's possible. Because Jesus paid the penalty for David's sin. Jesus paid the penalty. So when Uriah looks across the table at David, Uriah doesn't see all the harmful things that David did to him. What Uriah sees is he sees David through the eyes of Christ. He sees a man who made his mistake, but whose mistake has been covered and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when David looks back across that table, he's, he may be feeling guilty, or at least we'd like him to feel guilty, but he doesn't because when he looks across that table, he looks across through the eyes of Jesus Christ, knowing that what he did cost innocent people their lives, but knowing that that sin has been covered, that sin has been paid for. It's like this. Um, you don't know this yet, but uh, your family is getting you a brand new car for Christmas. Oh, did I, did I spoil it? I guess we'll just all take them back now. Um, but you're getting a brand new car for Christmas. And let's say you let me borrow that car, or maybe you're into trucks and you want a truck. Uh, you let me borrow your car, and I take it out for a spin. I'm cruising down 195, trying to do about 195, and I total your brand new car. Total. Bring it home. I'm standing there in your driveway. I hand you back the keys. I'm like, man, that was a sweet ride for about two minutes. Uh, thanks for letting me drive your car. It was awesome. I loved it. Sorry about your car. That car is still wrecked. And you may forgive me, but someone's got to pay to fix it. Someone has to pay to fix it. Things are not right until either I pay for it to be fixed, our insurance pays for it to be fixed, or you pay for it to be fixed. That car is not right. That car is damaged until someone pays for it to be fixed. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Our sin deserved death. That's the penalty of sin. We deserved that death. But Jesus Christ was born from the line of David. He was born, and he grew up to be a man, lived a sinless life, and he laid down his life on the cross to die and pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty's been paid. The price for your sin has already been paid. And the beautiful thing about this is that, that God doesn't ask us uh, to try to earn our way to heaven because there's no way that we ever possibly could. There's no way that we could ever do enough to earn God's grace. We just, we just couldn't do it. So he pays that price for us. He pays that price. But as we get ready to celebrate Christmas, think about this. You have presents under the Christmas tree right now, don't you? Some of you. Some of you won't until like the 24th or maybe 2 o'clock in the morning on the 25th. Uh, But eventually you're going to have presents under the tree. They have your name on it. But it's not your gift. 
until you open it up, you receive it, and you take it home with you and you make it yours. And that's exactly what God asks us to do in his son, Jesus Christ. He offers us the gift of grace. He offers us the gift of salvation that all of our sin, all of our pain, all, everything that we've experienced in the past can be forgiven if we will just receive his son, Jesus Christ, through faith. It's there, but it's not ours until we receive it. I want to ask you this morning, where are you in your relationship with God? And, and what I want to reiterate, here's the application, is that God's grace brings joy. God's grace brings joy. David can, got to go on living, and uh, you know what? His second son that he has with Bathsheba ends up being Solomon. Solomon is in the line of Jesus also. Uriah's name is not forgotten. There's joy, and, and when I think about this, I think about what did the angels say when they talked to the shepherd? We bring you good news of great joy. Jesus' birth brought joy. Out of some of the worst circumstances, the worst situations, comes the gift of grace and joy that comes with that grace. And God is offering it to you. It's up to you to, through faith, receive that gift this morning as we close. I just want to give you that opportunity um, to receive that gift. And so as we prepare for our take two, take two is the time in our message when we just take two minutes, and I want you to, to write down one thing that God is saying to you, and then uh, your I will statement, which is what you're going to do about what God is saying to you. And if this morning, if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you cannot look back on a time in your life, and you can't say right now that I am trusting in Christ alone as my Savior, I hope that you'll write down, you'll spend some time just talking with God, saying, God, today I'm trusting in you. If you have questions about that still, I'll be in the back with one of the elders after service. You can come talk with one of us, ask us about what that means, how you do that. Uh, But in this time, I, I ask that you just take time to pray about it. Now, if you're here this morning and you have already put your trust in Jesus Christ, maybe you did that 40, 50 years ago, whether you, if you've already done it, here's what I would ask of you. As we go into this time for take two, I want you to write down the name of one person, one person from your family or where you live, work, or play that you need to have a conversation with this Christmas season about Jesus Christ and that you need to be sure that they understand that God is extending a gift to them and that they can receive it. One name. One name. And then under, under I will, if you just write, I'm going to pray for them this week, and next week I'm going to have lunch with them, and we're going to have this conversation. just want to encourage you. Take two. Psalm 32 says this. This psalm was written at the time that David was 
going through his confrontation with Nathan. Uh, I want to encourage you, maybe go home and read this whole psalm and then flip over to Psalm 51. And this is written after he's been confronted by Nathan. And this is what he says in chapter 32 of the book of Psalms. He says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin. There is grace. There is God's grace given through his son Jesus Christ. And when you receive that, you can experience joy this Christmas season. You can experience joy throughout your life knowing that your sin is forgiven. I just want to encourage you in that. I I do hope that you'll go home and take some time to read through those verses. Um, But at this time, I'd ask that you would pull out your connection card and wave it around so I know you got it in your hand, so I know everybody's got it. All right, if you hadn't had a chance to finish filling it out, please take some time and do that now as our ushers make their way, prepare to receive this morning's offering. Um, There's a couple things on the back here. Uh, A great way to take a next step. I want to point you to number two, which says, I will join a community group. That is a great next step. We really do believe that lives are changed when we as believers live in community with one another. In fact, on the 28th, since we're not having service, you're encouraged to get together with the people of River Rock Bible Church. Get together with your community group. Uh, If you're in town, get together with them and have brunch or lunch. Or uh, if you're really crazy, get up and have an early breakfast together and just spend some time together. Worship together in someone's home. Uh, If you're not connected with a community group, now would be a great time to do that and, and get together with them on the 28th. Um, The next thing on here would be I'm interested in, and I want to point you to beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have never done that, I will, again, I'll be in the back. I would love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to take you to lunch and talk with you about that. Um, And then also, I'd be asking, if you have done that, again, be praying. Be praying that God would give you that opportunity to have that conversation with someone that needs to hear it this Christmas season. As we receive this morning's offering, I just want to uh, remind you that everything that you give here at River Rock Bible Church goes to allowing every man, woman, and child to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. And, and so we just want to be thankful to God, and we ask um, a couple things towards the end of the year. We've got end-of-the-year giving, and some of you will want to uh, make a contribution for the end of the year. Those are tax-deductible. You can either do that online, or you can make sure it's in the mail uh, postmark by... December 31st. And then lastly, if you're giving for our Give a Family Christmas, make sure you write that in the memo so that it doesn't just get lost in the general fund. Um, But we know that that's specific for that. And I really want to encourage you. um, We've got to do a lot of shopping before Christmas. We do have one more Sunday, but we're really hoping to do some of that shopping for this family um, this week. So if you're planning to um, contribute to Give a Family Christmas, be sure you stop at that back table. Get a tag, write a check, give cash. We've got receipts. You'll still get the the contribution, tax-deductible contribution for that. Um, Just don't miss out on this opportunity to bless this family with Christmas. Uh, Will you pray with me as we receive this morning's offering? Lord, we do pray that you'd be with us, um, that you'd be with these tithes and offerings and use them for the expansion of your kingdom, that more and more people would hear of your son, Jesus Christ, and experience the joy of grace that you offer through him. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.